0: And to the passage we read earlier. <clears throat> and if I wanted to highlight some verses, let me highlight verses 20, 21. They brought these men to the magistrates and they said, These men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. It is a simple fact that the missionary zeal of Christianity has often been represented as being an arrogant form of Western imperialism, not so much by the rest of the world, but by people who live in the West themselves. It's become part of the revisionism, if you will, of the uh, intellectually liberal within the Christian church to rubbish missionary work or missionary expansion or proselytization, to use the dirty word that is often used to describe the work of mission. And our endeavors overseas are often regarded as an insult to local cultures or insensitivity at the very best. And the reason for this is plain to see after 2,000 years, it's true to say that Christianity has had a significant impact on Western culture and values. Not as great as we would like, I hasten to add, and not as great as we would like to think, I hasten to add. But it has had a significant impact on Western culture and values. And in the past it's true that followers of Jesus have wrongly linked the gospel to their state churches, to their national governments, or even to their ethnic identities. This has confused the issue. Added to that the fact the church has often been used by political or commercial interests as a way of giving at least a veneer of respectability to what has often been purely rank exploitation. It's also true to say that in our zeal we have sometimes confused the timeless message of the gospel with some of our own cultural baggage. We've exported our hymns. We've exported our church architecture. You can go to the middle of Africa and you can see Gothic church buildings there, which seems to me most ridiculously out of place. We've taken our liturgies, sometimes even our language. Latin, for example, for many, many hundreds of years was being used around the world in all kinds of locations with all kinds of people who didn't know a word of Latin. We've taken our clothes, not so much what I'm wearing as what other people wear on Sundays, the robes they wear and so on, and we've uh, exported these to diverse parts of the world. We've not only done exportation, we've also been importing. We've imported into the church local customs and tribal practices and cultural idiosyncrasies, uh, we've baptized these things with Christian names and think that they're part of what it is to be a Christian and we've confused the issue all over the place. Now we've all done this, or we've done this with the best of intentions, though at times it's been unwise or insensitive or counterproductive to say the least. Now I say all these things because I think they need, they're widely recognized. They should be frankly confessed, but we should also alert each other to the danger of overstating these things. There is a lobby of opinion that says that our missionary zeal is in fact a denial of true Christianity. The politically correct argument that's used in some church circles is that we should live and let live, that tolerance means that everybody is right, that all religions are equally valid and that we must recognize that in other parts of the world that have been brought up with Islam or brought up with Buddhism or Hinduism or Confucianism and so on, that these are their historic, these are the religions of their heart, these are the love languages of their heart, and we shouldn't interfere with these things. Of course, there is a historical problem with all of this, isn't there? And and the interesting thing about this chapter 16 of Acts is that it addresses that historical problem, and it's simply this most of the values that we're talking about when we talk about the Western world developed in Northern Europe and then came from Northern Europe to North America. And between Northern Europe and North America, what we call the West and Western values are what are represented by those two great continents. But when the first preachers of the gospel came to Europe, Their message came as something strange and was violently resisted. We learn this from this chapter. Violently resisted on these grounds that the Christian message was contrary to their local, imperial, and cultural ethos. Because the reality is this. The Christian message is an eastern message before it is a western message. It starts in the east and moves westward. In fact, at the same time as it's moving westward from Palestine, it is also moving eastwards, ever eastwards, until it's established in India and in China before the death of the last apostle in the New Testament. It's a remarkable feat. Christianity is a, an eastern Religion. And when it first came to to Europe, and that's what's being described here in chapter 16, the visit of the first Christian preachers in Europe met with this basic objection. Let me read again, verse 20 and 21. These men are Jews. They've come from the East. They are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us, Romans, to accept or to practice. That was the accusation that was made. They were importing a foreign religion. And of course that is absolutely right because what Paul was doing as he went into Europe, he was saying to them this, your pantheon of gods are no gods at all. He was saying to the Europeans, there is only one, one and only one God. He is the creator of all humanity. He is the God of the Jews and He's the God of the Gentiles and He is the God of everybody and He is the God with whom you have to do. Here's how Paul would have put it. I'm quoting him from Romans chapter 3. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is He not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of the Gentiles too, since there is only one God. God. Here's Paul's message. As he goes into Europe, he is rubbishing the, God of the gods of the Europeans. And he is declaring that there is only one God. That God has revealed himself to Israel and supremely in Christ. Which Europeans must come to believe if Europeans are going to be saved. Because we have to remember that our ancestors, most of us I guess come from uh, historically, some North, uh, North European background, but wherever you come from in the world, our ancestors worshipped many different kinds of deity. The pre-Christian world of Europe, the pre-Christian world of North America was a world gripped by superstition, child sacrifice and bizarre ritual. So whenever we summon men and women to believe the Christian message, we are summoning men and women back to the authentic gospel about the authentic God that predates the pagan period, that goes right back to the roots of humanity itself. That's why there are glimpses of truth in all the other religions. It is a racial memory of the time when all of humanity worshipped the one God, Right at the beginning, that's where it started with one God, and then it deteriorated from one God to many gods, as men and women got further and further away from their relationship. There's a sense in which what Christianity is doing is recalling men and women back to their own racial, cultural roots, predating their pagan period, taking them to Christ, who is the image of that God. So Christ is for cultures. Christ is for countries. Christ is for continents. But if chapter 16 of Acts tells us anything, it also tells us this. Christ is for individuals. He's for people like you and me. This is a major new departure here in chapter 16. A move into, uh, into Europe there's going to be a mighty church formed there that's going to have a significant impact on the entire world for the gospel, for good or bad. But it starts with individual people. First of all, there's someone I would call a designer chic queen. You know what chic means, don't you? No. It's a French word, Uh, I think that's where it originates, but chic has to do with style. It has to do with wealth. It has to do with good taste. It has to do with dressing in a way that catches the eye and leaves the person who is looking on thinking, that person is confident, that person has taste, that person has style. Uh, I would point out someone like that if they were here, but they're not, so you have to imagine it. (laughs) In in your minds, okay? Just use your imagination. Well, we start with this designer chic queen. We start with this person, Lydia. She's mentioned in verse 11. I'm just going to mention her briefly because we've began to look at her last time, which seems like a million years ago, but we, we started to look at Lydia. Her story starts with an open door when Paul and his friends are led by a whole series of interventions and uh, coincidences, apparently, but which are divinely orchestrated coincidences, three of them in just five verses, and those coincidences open a door for them so that there's absolutely nowhere else they can go, so they go to Europe. And as they go to Europe, they meet a woman with an open heart, Lydia, who came from Thyatira, Um, Some things we learn about this lady, Lydia, we learn that she was a a seller of purple cloth. That was high-end material in those days. It it was only used by the rich uh, and those who could afford luxury goods. And apparently she's a very successful woman. She has a very large house. Uh, in which she is able to accommodate a number of people in her family and, and the servants, and also Paul and Silas and others, and hold large enough meetings for them to use it as their church going forward. But she is also a woman whose name was the brand of her clothing. I, I, think, I think we could say that if you had a Lydia, you would be proud of a Lydia, the way you might be of a, a Jean-Paul Gaultier or a Versace or whatever, you would be glad to be seen in a Lydia outfit. And people would, you'd put the label would be, you know, where you want the label to be. Sticking out, somebody would have to put it in, but I I noticed that you're wearing a Lydia. Where did you buy it? It's the best of stuff. And the remarkable thing is, here is this woman, a successful businesswoman, and key verse in verse 14 is this, the Lord opened her heart to respond to to Paul's message. There was a work of spontaneous regeneration in the heart of this woman. And she opens her heart to the Lord Jesus. Compelled by the grace of God, she will not take no for an answer, and she establishes a church in her home. I just want to say this in passing. This is still God's way with us. God's way with Lydia is God's way with His people. He stirs us up whatever walk of life we are on. He puts in our heart a longing for something more as He put in Lydia's heart. She was a woman who was investigating the truth. She was searching for the truth. She was a woman of prayer. She was asking God for truth and light. She was seeking God with her heart. She did not know where to turn But she learned this. She learned what Jesus meant when he said, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. And the Lord opened her heart to the truth. You may be here tonight and you are searching for something. You are searching for meaning, for something bigger than you are. Something bigger than the universe Is Something bigger than your bank account. Something more satisfying than the relationships that you have in your life. I want you to learn from Lydia. Ask for it. You may think you're talking to the air. I ask you, do an experiment. Say, God, if you are there, God, the Father of Jesus, if you are there, will you hear my cry for help? My cry for you, will you hear me in heaven? You don't have to shout it the way I did. You can say it quietly. And you can say it in your own head. But I invite you to do that because I have the assurance that he will hear you. He opened the heart of this woman. Well, he was a designer chic lady. But then there's a disturbed dragon girl. I read the story of this girl that we read about from verse 16 and I think of the girl with a dragon tattoo. I hope you haven't seen that movie. It's, I don't I'm not recommending it at all, but uh I, she just brings to mind in my mind the girl with the dragon tattoo. She is a disturbed dragon girl. She's a fortune teller. She's a teller. She's a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. And uh the the whole introduction we have here is to the spirit world, to fortune telling. Uh to mediums, to clairvoyance. You may say we're too sophisticated for this kind of stuff today. But let me tell you, you don't know your society in which you live. You don't understand the kind of world that we live in. More people are into this than you realize. More people in power and in positions of influence in the world are into this kind of stuff than you realize. It's been common in the 20th century, it was very common, Uh, after the First World War. Uh, So many millions of people were killed in the battlefields of Europe after the First World War that millions of their relatives turned in their grief and in their questioning they turned to spiritualism and spiritualism spiked just after that First World War and has had a great influence since. And there are many people who want to know what it is that lies just beyond the bounds of our knowledge. What lies beyond the boundary of death. There are still people who are interested in those things. And here is a girl who's caught up in the vortex of that kind of thing. And she is a victim. She is a victimized girl. She is victimized by spiritual forces. According to Luke... People believed this girl had a python spirit, a demon that was believed to make her an oracle able to foretell the future. Now the background to this is a a Greek myth. The god Apollo had slain the serpent oracle python to establish his own oracle at Delphi, the famous oracle at Delphi. And the pagans of the Greco-Roman world, from the naive illiterate, to the educated nobility cons- consulted omens and oracles all the time. It was part and parcel of their life. They wanted to pierce the unknown future. Especially if you were starting out on a new career or on a new venture. Now in Israel, of course, the Lord God had taught Israel that no God could foretell the future. Because none of them but He maps out the future and controls history. He writes the script. The God of the Bible writes the script. You go to the Old Testament, you find over and over again references to the prophetic word of God that comes true 100%. And yet even he warned his people against consulting those who practiced divination. This girl was not a con artist. This girl was possessed by an evil spirit. Her prophecies emanated from a demon. You need to believe in the demon world, the world of spirits. There are angels. Yes, there are extraterrestrial creatures. Angels loyal to God. And there are angels who are fallen creatures loyal to Satan. And we call those fallen angels demons. Of course, we're too sophisticated to think that there's extraterrestrial life. That's why America spends billions of dollars every year listening into radio frequencies, gazing out into the night sky in the belief that somewhere out there there must be a higher intelligence than ours. Well, guess what? The Bible says there is. The angels are a higher intelligence than ours is. And they possess. They're active in the universe, and the demons possessed this girl. I want you to notice something about this girl, what she said. Here's the evidence that demons are at work. She followed Paul and us, Luke includes himself here, crying out, verse 17, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now you say, isn't that a great message? Here she is, she's being used by the demons to proclaim a message, a message of salvation. But of course, we need to remind ourselves of the context. In in the Jewish context, of course, this phrase, the Most High God, was used of one individual, Melchizedek, a person mentioned way back at the beginning of the Bible, who was the king of Salem, which is Jerusalem, And we're told that he is identified there as the priest of the Most High God. This kind of phrase. In a Jewish context, that's okay. But this girl is speaking from a pagan context. And so whenever you read that phrase, the Most High God, you would think of Zeus. Who was the top of the tree and the pantheon of the various deities of Rome and Greece. And all of these deities of Roman Greece, all of them offered salvation. Salvation was something that they offered to people. They could save you from physical illness, from infertility, from poverty, from frustration in romance and, and other kinds of troubles. And Paul is disturbed by her incessant testimony. And he's disturbed by it because it was so vague. It was so unclear. It subsumed what Paul was talking about into the pagan pantheon. And it was so subtle. You remember when Jesus was here. Evil spirits invariably recognized the Lord Jesus when He was on the earth. And what did Jesus do? He invariably did what? Amen, He said. Preach it. Demons. No, he didn't do that. Invariably, Jesus silenced the demon. He silenced the demon as Paul silences the demon here. Paul is signaling and Jesus is signaling what the demon's into and what I'm into are not the same thing. They're not the same thing. They're into different things. In fact, I think you can see this. In a, a literal translation of what the girl is saying, her words are best translated, these men are telling you a way to be saved. You're just one of them, a number. They're, they're just part of a, the pantheon. This Jesus is just another name for another one of our gods. What the devil does, you see, is he deceives people. He deceives people not very often by giving them a whole great big lie. What he does is he deceives them by introducing just a little fragment of error. Enough to push until eventually he pushes you away from the truth of God as it's been revealed in Scripture. So... Paul delivers her for this because such confusion needs to be cleared up. This girl was a victim of these spiritual forces, but she was also victimized by commercial interests. She was controlled by these business people. They manipulated her. They were her minders. They were the people who used her. They were kind of her pimps. They made money out of her. They used this demented, wild, raving kind of effect that the demon was having on this girl they used her for their own ends they saw her as a way of of, of drumming up custom getting people to to buy their goods they used her to market their particular merchandise when the girl lapsed into a frenzy and spoke in a voice that was clearly not her own and people crowded around her wanting to hear what she was doing and watching wanting to see this strange demented creature that she was I want you to see that these men who are making money out of this girl's sad condition were as much possessed by demons as she was. They were possessed by the demon god Mammon. Money is what they lived for. And they would use this girl. They would demean this girl. They would tear this girl's self-image down. They would do anything to destroy this girl and use her in order to further their own ends. This girl was victimized by demon forces and by commercial interests. And when Paul delivers her, delivers her, he is setting her free. He is setting her free from Her enemies. He's setting her free from the powers of darkness. When Paul sets her free, he is fulfilling that aspect of the mission of Jesus as he declares it in Luke chapter 4, that He has come to set the captives free. The God who set Israel free from her captivity in Egypt. The God who set Israel free from her captivity and exile in Babylon. This God has acted to rescue this girl from her bondage to demons and to these commercial interests. God's in the business of setting people free. And you notice how they respond to this. These men... Our Jews, they're disturbing our city. Why are they saying this? They're saying that because it hits them where? It hits them in their pocketbook. It's all down to the money. It's all to do with dollars and cents. They're not interested in the girl and her well-being. They're interested in the bottom line. He delivers this girl from her enemies. And they turn Paul and Silas over to the lictor. The lictor is the official who carried a bundle of rods and an axe to show that he had authority to inflict corporal and capital punishment. This is where we get our word, getting your licks from, which is an American expression no one else in the world would understand that expression. There you go. And the evangelist's backs would be whipped, reduced to a sticky, swollen mass of lacerated skin and dried blood. And in that condition, they were taken into the prison, their feet fastened to stocks in the prison's inmost cell. And we're introduced now to the third gentleman, a distinguished Military veteran. Do you know we have one sitting in the front row this evening? I, I would be able to point to him and say, you look at the, the medals on his chest. There's a, a model of what this man is. You see, what happened to the military veterans? Very often after they would finished their job in, in, the, in the army, they were given a job working for the uh, the local authority for the magistrate, and this man had been a centurion and he was working uh, in charge of this jail complex, which was a very important uh, responsibility that he had had placed on his shoulders. So here's Paul and Silas. They're in the prison. They're fastened to the stocks. Their backs are lacerated. They're unjustly charged. And what do we read in verse 25? About midnight. Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. Well, I bet they were listening to them. Uh, In the middle of the night, when somebody's singing and you're trying to get some sleep, you can't help but listen to what they have to say. Paul and Silas in prison. It wasn't the most sensitive moment, but hey, it was a good moment. And these guys had deserved to be heard. Strangely enough, Paul later wrote to this church about this very idea. He said to this church, you know, it's been given to you. It's been a great gift that God has given to you not only to believe in the Lord Jesus, but also to suffer for His sake. I wonder if there were some of the new church members who were among those prisoners who were in the cells and heard Paul and Silas singing in the night. and Maybe sing, listening to them singing were converted and became part of the church and were able to testify when Paul wrote the letter to the Philippi- Philippians. They knew this Paul and this Silas, they'd been in prison there too. They knew it was to suffer for the gospel. You see, as these two sing their duet, this dynamic duel singing their duet in prison, you learn that these men, you see, did not base their theology on their circumstances. You know this word circumstance comes from the Latin. It means the things that stand around. They're the things that are around you. They're not part of you. They are are there, the circumstances in which you find yourself. They weren't dominated by their circumstances. Rather, they evaluated their circumstances in light of their theology. That's how they looked at these things. In fact, Paul actually taught the Philippians that they should not look at their circumstances, but they should root themselves, sink their roots deeply into the Lord. They should rejoice in the Lord always, always, in all circumstances. All circumstances rejoice in the Lord. And here is Paul and Silas. These people at Philippi, they knew when they got that letter to the Philippians. This is what they did. They sang Paul, Silas, they're in the prison. And then what happens? God joins in on the base. And the duo, duet becomes a trio. And wherever God joins in on the base, let me tell you, there is an earthquake. Whether it's God at Sinai, where He descends, you remember, to the mountain, and the whole mountain shakes with the coming of God. Or whether it's at Sinai, when the Son of God cries out in triumph, finished! And the whole earth trembles and there's a great earthquake as God moves. Or whether it's that prayer meeting, do you remember? When the men are released and they come back earlier on in Acts and they're praying to God and they're saying, God, equip your people, empower your people, give us Confidence and courage to go back out there, knowing that we'll be arrested, but with power to proclaim your word, and God moves by His Spirit, and there's an earthquake. Here's Paul and Silas singing their parts, and God sings His part, and there is an earthquake, and the walls shake, and the chains are dislodged from their places. And the doors of the prison fly open. And the prisoners are all free to go. It's an amazing picture. You can just see what would happen. There they are, highlighting out of that prison as quick as you can get out. Nobody moved. That's the most remarkable, that's a miracle in itself. But there they were. They were set free by the power of God. The God who had liberated the the Israelites from Egypt. The Lord who had liberated His Son from the chains of death. Now releases the apostles from prison. He is the divine liberator. And that's where our distinguished military veteran comes onto the scene. He is a responsible person. He takes his responsibility seriously. He knows the consequences according to the code of Justinian, which was the military code of Rome. He is about to take his own life as a matter of honor for having so dishonorably, in his mind, dishonorably acted, allowing this thing to happen. He didn't realize it was above his pay grade and beyond his control. And then everything changes. Paul gets his attention. The trembling man comes down the corridor to find all the prisoners still in their place. No chains, no doors, but still in their place. And he says to Paul, Paul, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? I don't know what's going on in his mind. I don't know what he understands by the question. Had he listened to some of those songs in the night? Had he heard the slave girl's bizarre testimony? Or was he overwhelmed so by the power of God that he knew there was something these men could tell him that nobody else could tell him in the entire world? And without knowing what it was, he knew he needed rescued. What must I do to be saved? Paul answers the question by saying, the salvation you want is a comprehensive salvation. Comprehensive. From sin and guilt, condemnation, alienation, death, death physically and death eternally. It's a comprehensive salvation. Covers everything. Covers everything in the book and more. What that man learned that night was simply this Almighty God had gotten his men arrested and brutally punished, and placed in a prison cell overnight in order that this one man, this one man and his family might be impacted with the gospel. Isn't that amazing? You say, why did God put Paul and Silas through this? Surely there was another way. This is the same God who comes into the world in Christ and is despised and rejected by men and women and is abandoned by His friends and is crucified, dead and buried. This is the God who in Christ stooped so low in order to reach a designer queen and a dragon girl and a military veteran that he had chosen before the beginning of the world. This is just like God to do this. Paul in his response, you notice, gives the best answer to the best question anyone's ever asked. And he says to him, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He says there's no, there's no other name, nobody else, no other name. The Lord Jesus Christ, that's the only name. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll learn more about him. Your understanding of him will grow. Everything associated with him will be filled in in time as you listen to the teaching. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And the man comes out publicly as a Christian he's baptized. He and his family baptized. As a mark that he and his family have moved their allegiance somewhere else to King Jesus. Now there's a little thing at the end of the story <clears throat> which we don't really have time for but I'll throw it in just in passing little thing at the end of the story when they get out of prison you suddenly learn that they didn't need to be there why did they not need to be there well they didn't need to be there because Paul and Silas were roman citizens roman citizens you didn't treat like this If there were Roman citizens, you had to go through due process of law. You could not treat a Roman citizen unjustly. Look at Paul's response. He actually uses the same form of words that they had used. What was it they had said? They had said, These men... are Jews. Paul uses exactly the same form of words when he responds, you have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens. And when word gets out like that, the magistrates are terrified. Philippi was a Roman colony. The citizens of Philippi had been given the privilege of being Roman citizens. If word about this got out, their status as a Roman colony could be revoked. And you notice that Paul will not let it go. He says to them, so they've apologized and they just want us to go off quietly. No. let the people who are responsible come and apologize in person. Was he going beyond the bounds of Christian politeness? Do you know, politeness is not a virtue in Christianity. It's not not in the Bible. Being nice isn't either, which is why I'm neither nice nor polite. But Paul was not averse to using his position within the law in order to make a point. And he's making a point here. He's making this point to these authorities. We could have said this earlier. We could have brought this up earlier if we had the opportunity, if we'd been asked any questions, we would have told you that we were Roman citizens. You need to be a bit more careful before you do this to anybody else. But you also need to know that we knew what we were taking when we went into that prison. We understood what we were doing. We were doing it deliberately. We, we serve a higher king, <clears throat> King Jesus. But we want you to understand that although we serve King Jesus, we have not come <clears throat> to disrupt the Roman social order or be treasonous towards its governor, or its government. In fact, we live by the law as much as possible. Here's a great lesson. You see, if you read this chapter, you see captives are being freed all over the place here. is being free from, freed from her success, to have her heart open to the Lord. Here's this girl, freed from her victimization by civil by commercial and by spiritual influences. Here's this jailer free from the weight of responsibility that hung over him because of of his sin. And here's Paul. He's free to surrender his privileges in order to serve the gospel even where that isn't a very pleasant experience. I'm free. Christ brings freedom. Freedom to use your rights or deny your rights as you choose for the sake of the gospel. There's freedom. Freedom in its fullness. Spiritual, social, cultural, personal freedom. In this chapter we learn that Jesus has come to make us free martin luther and with this i close martin luther declared a christian man is the most free lord of all and subject to none a christian man is the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone <clears throat> what do you mean by that contradiction luther explained The Christian man justified by faith is free from bondage to sin and the law and the need to earn his salvation by his own work. But, he uses his freedom to serve God with a grateful heart. He even surrenders his freedom to live a life of love and service of his neighbor as exemplified by Jesus. That's real freedom. And the Son makes us free. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that fullness of life and freedom that there is in our Lord Jesus. Some of us are uh, trammeled to the traditions of our cultures. Uh, We're not free from uh, perhaps the traditions of the past, the influences of others. Maybe someone here tonight who is not free from spiritual forces and needs to be delivered by the very Word of God that's being proclaimed this evening. Whatever our bondage is, we pray that tonight there may be someone like this designer lady, somebody like this demented girl, someone like this distinguished officer who tonight would find the Savior, our Lord Jesus, in whom alone is salvation. We pray in his name. Amen.